my own okay good morning oh, what a joy to be here with you guys uh, and I see faces that I've not had a chance to meet or get to know which is is really an amazing cool thing that that you guys are, are doing so well over here just everything I hear from guys in the church and from Jeff just how the Lord is blessing you two services is uh, is a bit of a milestone and uh, and in some ways a millstone uh, <laughs> as well uh, I'm remembering doing two services back on the South Shore over there a number of years ago but I was much younger and probably could remember what I had and had not said by the time I got to the second service. So you might want to be praying for me today because I could just be having brain confusion. Have I said that already? Did I already say that? Um, anyway, it was so great to be with you guys for Alpha uh, here. What a wonderful opportunity. I, I love when you guys do Alpha and you have this, this storefront and people are walking by. It feels like you got this live restaurant thing going on. And people are walking by and say, hey, y'all, come on in. Yeah, come pull up a chair, eat something. Yeah, it's an alpha course. Um, but that, that's, that's been exciting to be. It was so good to be with Jeff and Kathy this week and Mark and Amber uh, at a leadership retreat that we had for our churches. Um, but much, much thanks for you, uh, just, just the, the things that God is doing through you as a church, the way God is, is growing your influence in the North Shore here. Uh, Lone and Jeff to us. Jeff serves our, our regional church planning committee, so there's a lot of uh, needs that we have to plant churches. And then we've, we've planted the church in Jamaica last year, which is why I'm headed there next week, and we'll be ordaining two elders there in that church. And then we're, we're looking to plant another church uh, in Alabama. Uh, sorry. <laughs> You know, after that loss, after that humiliation last night, uh, yesterday, yeah, they do. They just, they need hope, uh, any form of revival. So we're believing God for that and planning a church there. We're merciful in Louisiana. Uh, all right, well, I am concerned always for time. Uh, Jeff said he wasn't tired of hearing me speak, but I, I can be long to listen to. So uh, I'm going to be careful about getting going here. So if you want to open the Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have been on a bit of a Corinthians pilgrimage on the South Shore, and there were just some thoughts from a passage that I'd been looking at a while back or a few weeks back that I thought would serve you guys. This morning, I titled the message, Communion, the Power of Remembering. And I know you guys celebrated communion just last week, I think Mark had told me that. And I had wanted to do this to my church, and I didn't get to do it. So you guys get, get what I had hoped to do to them. I wanted to do communion one week, and then come back and preach this message, do communion the next week, as an illustration of what's tucked away in these verses that is so valuable to our lives, but can get so easily lost. You've been a Christian for any length of time, a communion is a very familiar thing to you, and maybe too familiar. Right? Maybe it's lost some of its power and some of what it's trying to accomplish. And, and let me say this, you're going to see this from the reason why this text is located where it is. This is not just a message about communion. It, it's, it's about what kind of church are you going to be? And are you right now? Will you be 10 and 20 years from now? It's about what kind of marriage do you have right now, and will you have? 
It's about relationships with other human beings that have Christ at the center of them, whatever those are for you. It could be your extended family that you have, believers in your family. But there's something tucked away in communion that impacts all those things, and we're going to see that as we see why Paul brings this text up. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start these familiar verses, and we'll pan our way out in just a moment. Verse 23 Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray for a moment. Father, these are rich words. Your word is... It's a depth that we need some help to plunge. It's amazing that we can stare at passages that we've seen many, many times and yet see them in a new way new heart, and new impact on our lives. Lord, I pray for that this morning. Be among us so that your word is living and effective in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Charles Spurgeon, the great London pastor back in the mid-1800s, he said this about this passage. He says, it seems then that Christians may forget Christ. The text implies the possibility of forgetfulness concerning him whom gratitude and affection should constrain them to remember. There could be no need for this loving exhortation if there were not a fearful supposition that our memories might prove treacherous, and listen, and our remembrance superficial in its character or changing in its nature. How many of you guys reckon sometimes you just don't see God the same way you used to? Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's not a good thing. Nor is this a bare supposition. It is, alas, too well confirmed in our experience, not as a possibility, but as a lamentable fact. I appeal to the conscience of every Christian here. Can you deny the truth of what I utter? Do you not find yourselves forgetful of Jesus? Some creature steals away your heart, and you are unmindful of him upon whom your affection ought to be set. Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should have your eyes steadily fixed upon the cross. It is the incessant round of world, 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 the constant din of earth, earth, earth that takes away the soul from Christ. Oh, my friends, is it not too sadly true that we can recollect anything but Christ and forget nothing so easy as him whom we ought to remember? When I read a man who's preaching a message in 1855 and he can point to what feels like world, 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 and earth, 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 I want to say, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, you have no idea in the modern day in which it just feels like we're just drowning in so much earth, 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 here, right here, right now. But here's what's interesting about this passage. It's not just the sense that we get taught about communion. As a matter of fact, 
as central to the Christian faith and the Christian gatherings as communion is, there's, there's not a lot taught about it in the New Testament. You get Jesus inaugurating it, and you get very little explanation of it beyond that until you get to this passage. This is a massively important passage to understand what's involved in this thing that we call communion. But why is Paul bringing it up right here? Is it like Paul's got a Sunday school class going on with the Corinthians and he, and he started off saying, hey, well, first we're going to talk about prayer and we'll, we'll move into some Christology. Uh, we'll talk about the church. And since we're on the church, we'll talk about its ordinances, so maybe baptism and communion. So he just gets to that next. Is that how this comes up? This isn't a systematic theology class. This is Paul trying to fix a church that's broken in a bunch of ways. That's what Corinthians is. And, and in some ways, that's weirdly uh, encouraging. That a first century church that the Apostle Paul had led and influenced tremendously had problems, fell short of being the ultimate church. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds like my church, sounds like you guys as well, I'm sure. But there's a reason why Paul generates this content, right? It's actually what they're failing to do that causes Paul to bring up, hey, you know what? You guys need to hear something about that's what he's saying to the Corinthians here, right? So back up with me, verse 20, you'll see in this little section of passages right before. Verse 20 says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow, and why is he saying that to these guys? Is it because they got the technical dimensions wrong? They put the wrong ingredients in their gathering and celebration of this meal? No, no, no. You've got to back out a little bit farther, and you've got to see the lives that they're living to get why Paul says, you guys come together, and the meal that you eat is not the Lord's Supper. So when you back out a little bit, right, back up to verse 17 here. Paul says to them, in the, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. There must be factions among you. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, there are divisions among you. Now, if you're familiar with the Corinthian letter, this is one of many, many problems in the church. And this is not the first time Paul will have to address the issue of divisions among them. Chapter 3, Paul spent time, you may remember those verses where he says, you know, there were some that were kind of boasting, they had this attitude that, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. You know, remember the right-hand man to Jesus? I'm of him. And this was the attitude that existed amongst the Corinthians. And if, if you could go back and visit first century Corinth, you would see an abundance of opportunities for people to have misplaced loyalties, to have groups within groups, to be gathered around that which is familiar to them, which comes from their own background, that they identify with something. They've got a, a passion and a loyalty, and they've got a little bit of a hostility for other things. You're, you've got this melting pot culture in Corinth, a Roman colony with lots of Greeks in it as well and a, and a sprinkling of Jews that are there, and they're going to come together and do something called church. This is a radically different. I mean, I know we have, we have tensions and issues in our world of, of differences, but, but we look a lot alike. 
And you look around the room, everybody kind of looks like we look a lot alike. Uh, that would not have been their case. Growing up Roman, a citizen, a person of power, a person of influence, even amongst Greeks who had some similar beliefs and lifestyles as you did, but they weren't Romans. So you had an attitude about being a Roman that was different than being a Greek. So even in the Gentile world, there wasn't exactly a lot of harmony there. Then you had the Jew and Gentile differences that existed. You had massive social stratas in Corinth. You had rich business owners, people who were in this Roman colony in Corinth because they, they were there to make money and, and to advance their cause and to buy up businesses and be successful. A third of the population in the Roman Empire or more were, were slaves. And so quite a bit of the church was slaves. And, and next to the slaves were freedmen who had once been slaves and who were now not slaves, but they weren't Romans business owners either. They just had a lot of stratification within the culture. And then Corinth had found a way to sort of boast in its unique spirituality. You know, they had spiritual labels as well. And we've got them today, right? You know, you can, you can get an attitude about being, you know, word dedicated, and you're a word church, and you kind of stick your chest out, you're a word, we're faithful to the word, we preach the word, and you got those other kooky Christians out there who are just go with their feelings kind of people, so they're a different class, but the go with the feelings people are sensing and experiencing God in a way that you people who are in the word, you're not, and so there's this, you come in and you kind of figure out, who am I? My, my Methodist Presbyterian, we've got our denominations, so this stuff creeps its way into the church. But then just good old-fashioned selfishness comes in as well. Verse 20, you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Right, so you had these wealthy Roman patrons. They, they owned businesses. They had, they had kind of a network underneath them of people that they were influencing. And more than likely, you were probably holding church in one of their homes. So you were in their house, and all the wealthy people could get off work early and show up for the meeting. You know, so the church gathers, and all the other Roman business owners, they show up first. They bring the best food, the best wine. They sit down, they have their meal together, and by the time the freedmen and the slaves get off work and can get there, all the good food's been eaten, and they've already drank all the wine. And you know, here you are, some poor guy showing up with a Campbell's soup of chicken noodle, and you know, it's like that's all you got. So this is what you're going to be eating. The caviar is all gone. You know, all the, the big wigs ate that, and you're made to be put in your place. You're just this poor individual. You're a poor individual with nothing out there, and you are that in here. Paul highlights that. He says, I can't believe you have made people feel like that. They are among you. I will not commend you. All right, this, this is the epicenter of why Paul brings this up. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And what's interesting, I have no doubt that when they got together, they were actually eating the meal. But yet eating the meal, going through the outward, doesn't qualify for what going through the heart of it meant to Paul. 
for instance, I mean, we, we, just, we just sang. We called that worship, worship portion. How many know you can sing this morning and not worship God? You, you could be a thousand miles away. You could be walking in here under the weight of every fear, every pressing issue in your life, and that's what you're staring at. And in the background, there's that music going on. And there were words, and there were songs, and you may have even mouthed and sang some. Listen, if my heart isn't engaging those words, my heart isn't declaring those realities, that was not worship, that was just singing. There'd be no commendation from God for those mere activities. So danger, we can go through the motions, um, but not really land where we're supposed to in God's economy. Right, so in this Lord's Supper, a couple of key ingredients, right? There is bread, there is a cup, and there is something else that he's going to say twice in this presentation. Do this in remembrance of me. Right, so you have, you have two physical outward dimensions. You're actually going to eat bread and drink a cup. But there's an inward reality in this practice as well, and it's the practice of remembering. And I'm pretty sure that in this setting, the bread was being eaten, the cup was being drunk, but yet there was something missing. I think it's the remembrance that was their problem. They were going through something without the art, the work, the discipline, the intentionality of actually remembering something and paul surmises something here. this is medicine to fix the brokenness of the corinthian church he says you know you know why your relationships are so poorly done it's got something to do with how you remember christ but let me talk to you about this covenant meal called the lord's supper but paul saw if you were doing the lord's supper the way in which god designed us to do the lord's supper it would have an impact. And can I say, if, if it has an impact on how we do fellowship, it could revolutionize your marriage. It could change all kinds of broken relationships that might be in your life. And it's not just a matter of eating the bread, drinking the cup. It's going to be a matter of remembrance that is so critical. So let, let, me, let me show you another thought here about remembrance. Right? If you turn to Philippians chapter 1, Paul's going to give us an exercise in healthy remembrance. So Corinthians is not the only place where Paul does this, right? When we stare into the Philippian gathering in Philippians chapter 1, we get a lesson on remembrance here that's got a little bit more content to it than what Paul does in the communion meal. But he starts by saying this, very similar issue, because he's going to, he's going to hang this mantle on the Corinthians. He's going to say, you are eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So he hangs the word unworthy on their practice. And then Paul's going to use that similar thought with these guys in Philippi. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's got a context here where the people are gathering, they're being the church, they've got an agenda in front of them, they're living for some purpose, and how they come together matters. 
And he picks this thought up. He says, you know, don't, don't do this in an unworthy way. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, right? This is what's missing in Corinth. Paul's bringing it up again in Philippi. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in him in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God's highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's a situation in Philippi that is just like the situation in Corinth. And that's, you know, the, the, the epistles, they're, they're called occasional letters because they're written into an occasion. There's something going on there that needs to be spoken of. So in Philippi, we find this sense of, hey, we, we, you need to not just look out for your own interests. Right? We need to come together and live in a manner that's worthy of this gospel. And when Paul goes to fix them, he says, Let's, what's in your mind is what needs to fix that. And then he turns to the Corinthians and says something very similar to them. When I look at your life, it's full of problems and divisions and issues. What's in your mind? What are you remembering? And how are you going about doing that? Would have a drastic impact on the relationships you have with one another. So, so what is remembering? Let me give you my own definition for remembering. It is the act of mentally moving other realities into the scene of our current life moments. That's what remembering is. The act of moving other realities under the scene of our current life moment. Right? You know, we, could, we do this when we pull our phone out sometimes and we're visiting with somebody and we pull out a picture. You know, oh, remember this? And, and, and just a moment ago, you were just flat effect, you know, just kind of going through the motions and you run into somebody and you pull out this picture of you guys 25 years ago. <laughs> Remember this, and you look at it. What did you just do there? Because your mood changed. Your outlook suddenly is different. What did you do? You, you brought something into this moment that wasn't part of this moment. That's what remembering is doing. It's, it's bringing something to this moment. It is an act of importing something that was absent and not part of that setting. Right? It could be settings in our lives that, that just lack some content that would be very helpful for that setting. And I bring it into that moment by remembering, by pulling it in in my memory. It is supplying reasonings that touch current reasonings that we find in the settings of our lives. I've got reasons for what I'm going to do today. I've got reasons for who I will relate to and who I will not relate to for how I'm going to relate. I've got history with people. You did something to me last week. 
you did something to me for the hundredth time. I've got reasons. But remembering messes with those reasons because it, it brings something into those relationship settings that aren't naturally there. And, and there's going to be stuff and seasons and moments in our lives that are, that are like a desert, that are like a wilderness. There's nothing there but difficulty. Nothing. And you're going to interact with that life or that, that group of people, that couple that interacting with each other. There, there is something about remembering what we're going to do today that's, that's going to have a smashing impact on those. It's going to bring something into this moment that we desperately need. But if you go back to that, that passage there in Corinthians, there, there, there is some remembering that's specifically highlighted. And we actually are going to use some, some physical dimensions for that. So there's going to be the bread that is the broken body of Christ. And we're to remember about that. There's the cup of the new covenant. We're to remember that there's the death of Christ, and we're to remember that. And there is that fact that he's coming back in this passage, right? So there's four things that get highlighted in that passage that we are to remember. But, but can I tell you, those, those four things are kind of like the, the headings and subtitles in, a, in an article that you're reading. They're just headings and subtitles. You and I need more than headings and subtitles. We need paragraphs worth of information on each one of those. That when we pull up that file, we pull up the broken body of Christ. It's not just a phrase. It's not just one concept. It's not just an emblem. It's got depth and insight. It does something in our soul. We know that at a level, and we can fill it in with all that that pertains to. Listen, I'm one point in my life, I remember being in fourth grade. I hated reading. It's kind of funny because I grew up and just do nothing but read sometimes. Um, but I hated reading in fourth grade. So I was a strange kid who, who I, there was some moral compass in me that I felt like if I showed up and the teacher gave an assignment, I didn't want to lie, say I didn't do it. So I invented my own way of reading that somehow satisfied this requirement. And so what I would do is, you know, you get this literature book, you'd open it up, and it'd have all these, you know, eight-page stories in it. But it had headings and subheadings in it, like the little sections would. And so I would do two things. I would read the heading and the subheading, and that, for some reason that wasn't good enough. I would read the first word in every line. Yeah, I'm four, fourth grade. I'm sorry. I know that makes a lot of sense, but for some reason, I felt like I could go to class the next day, and, and if the teacher asked, did you read? I could say yes. For some reason, I could say yes. Like, I guess I'd read every line, so technically I'd read every line. I could say that. Um, but, you know, there's something about just reading the headings and not letting the depth of those realities soak in that we, we construct a kind of a paper-thin revelation about these things. And unfortunately, I think for some of us in the kingdom of God, uh, we, we have big titles with very little paragraphs underneath them. But these paper-thin realities about God, that when we pull up these phrases, that they don't have a body of work underneath them that our hearts are filled with. Right, you know, the Lord's Prayer would be a really familiar example. 
you know, Jesus never intended that the Lord's Prayer would just be prayed as fast as you could go through it. That's how I prayed it growing up. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I mean, it's almost like close to speaking in tongues as possible when I was in a, a child. Um, but they were just phrases that you could just go through. So technically, I prayed those things until you realize Jesus intended that to be headings. Our Father, stop, ponder, breathe in, consider what it means for the God of the universe to be my Father. And that, that's, you could stop right there. You could be off in prayer and meditation for quite some time with that. And that's what these words are intended, these emblems are intended to be teasers with bodies of information underneath them. And you and I can't afford for there to be blanks there or maybe one line. Our lives won't be affected by that. This meal was supposed to affect us. An interesting insight Ed Welch gives in his book on anxiety and having an anxious heart. He references St. Augustine here. He says, Augustine tried to cast his cares on the Lord, and it didn't work. That happens all the time. We asked Jesus to take away our miseries and worries, and nothing happened. So we move on to other strategies. And this is what Augustine said in, the, in his confessions. He, says, he said, there was this moment where he said, Thou, speaking of God, Thou wert not to me any solid or substantial thing, for Thou wert not Thyself, but a mere phantom. My error was my God. If I offered to discharge my load thereon, that it might rest, it glided through the void and came rushing down again on me. And do you get this image that he creates here? He's recognizing that his God, the God that he had constructed, was so thin and non-substantial that when life became heavy and he set his life on that God, Boom, right back down on him again. Almost like God was a cloud. Right? Clouds are great about blocking out the intensity of the sun, the light of the sun, etc. But you can't set anything on them. Right? I think sometimes we create this cloud version of God. It's thin. Things fall right through it. Ed Welch says, let's assume that often we have much in common with this fine saint. Our growth in facing fears and anxiety is slow because it's tied to our knowledge of and trust in the Lord. That kind of trust doesn't grow simply because we landed on an eye-opening passage of Scripture. Instead, God's truths must gradually become a part of us. This, this remembrance is pulling up files that need to become larger and larger and larger. As you and I move through life, the, our awareness of what God is like and who he is to us needs to become a massive body of work so that when we remember God, we pull a God of substance into our settings like the church and our marriages and our relationships and God's purpose in our lives. And, and that's what Paul does here in, in Philippians. Right? Paul is going to, unpack the weightiness of what are we remembering? What are we calling to mind? Look in verse 6. When he says, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, listen, this little phrase provides an element of scale to what just got said about God humbling himself and taking the form. There's there's some scale provided here. And, And scale is important when you and I get to a moment where we're needing to figure out how how much does God love me? Care about my life. Is is little? I need to go to a little bit of distance to jump into a moment to face some issue with me. How deep is the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the fact that God is intentional in pursuing me and my life. How, how persistent is he? Is it a little? Right? This, this verse provides scale, right? Scale. How far did Jesus come in his mission? Well, first, let's, let, I, you know, we can't get high, but let's put up here, he existed in the form of, of God. Can, can you see where he is, I, you know, telescope, I, you know, he existed in the perfectness of God. So just get him up as high as you and I as human beings can possibly imagine. And then how far did he come? Well, well, first huge distance is he comes and puts on one of these outfits. Can you imagine the eternal God who is everywhere at once, unbound by time and location? And yet he's going to be having footprints that he can't be there because he's right here right now. He's in one place trapped inside this little body like you and I. He's a creature. The creator has traveled to become a creature. And not just any creature. A servant creature. Not a ruling creature. Not a creature who had all kinds of accolades and importance among the creatures that he was, no, no, a ignored, insignificant creature who was there to serve and who was going to go all the way to the point of yielding his life against false allegations in a kooky court system that finds his perfection guilty of something and crucifies him all the way to the point of death. I mean, can, can you get the scale of this thing? When you're in that moment where you're wondering, is God going to show up in your mess? Would God make time for that? Would God treat your situation as important? Are you important? Do you, do you matter to God? Does, does he love you? Because I, I know you can be in a moment where it doesn't feel like God's anywhere to be found. All right, well, remember, there are moments that are wildernesses that are deserts. In that moment, you're going to need to import something into that space. That, that's what this does. Right? Romans 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with glory that is to be revealed to us. There is suffering in this present time. But immediately, Paul taught the, Corinthians, the Romans to compare that. Bring something else into the room with you. You have sufferings in the present time. You are going through difficulty. There is pain in your body. Death just occurred right around you and close to you. But compare that with something else. He goes on a little bit later in that chapter, Romans 8, verse 31. He says, well, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, here's a remember moment. Remember, 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure. Paul, how are you sure? Well, because I've got paragraphs underneath this heading. I just don't have a line that's flimsy, that can't support anything. I know this. I am convinced of this. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, there are moments when you cannot know things just as a title. You've got to have some weighty depth to what you're believing about God. And that's what's at the heart of remembering. Let me point out one more thing. Jeff, what time do I need to stop? minutes. Tight rope this baby. All right, so one more thing, because this is, this is, this is insightful, right? So remember this, have this mind in you, verse 6, who, though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right, call this to mind. Remember this about Christ. He is God, second person of the Trinity, He exists as God, but he was not a grasper. He was an entruster. He just entrusted himself to the Father. He had a sense that it was right. If it's right for him, can you imagine what's right for us? It was right for him to just be available to the Father's purpose. Whatever that is, I entrust. There wasn't a grasping going on. How many can follow this reality? How many of you think that the problems the Corinthians had were because they were graspers? Are you, do you want to figure out why your relationships go sideways? Why you stop being for each other? Why you fight and have conflict? Because we're graspers. I want something. I want something that I feel like I deserve to have or I feel like I need to have. Right? I'm going to start treating my wife, people in my church, out of a sense of my own security. My, I, I feel vulnerable. I feel threatened. I'm a grasper. I'm going to try and create safety now, and I'm going to manipulate people in order to do that. This is in every relationship. There is something about us that we can want things so badly that it becomes at other people's expenses. That's what the Corinthians were doing. That's what the Philippians were doing. That's what you and I can do. But in that moment, I'm needing to remember something. I'm needing to remember this one who traveled such an incredible distance because he was not a grasper. He was an entruster. He stared into the face of the Father, that Father who he knew could never plan anything that was not glorious and good for him, even though it was going to be seasons where it was incredibly painful. He was going to take the form of a human being. Not convenient. There wasn't a mad dash in heaven forever. Oh, I want to be human. Oh, no, I want to be human. They were, this is God. God's not enamored with being a human being. It's just a little creative. It's like you want to be an ant. I don't, I don't think you want to be an ant, do you? It's not like, wow, I'd love to. That'd be, oh, send me. Um, no. But that's who Jesus becomes because he, he was an entruster of himself. And even when he faced 
real difficulty and challenge and threat, right? John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. This is, this is getting toward the end of his ministry. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Right? Save me from that. What is that? It's a call for safety. It's a call for don't let this overtake me. Right? Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see that. Father, if it's possible. Listen, sometimes some, the safest thing, the most non-accused, the most non-violent offender of sin is the person who's trying to find safety. But you know, the, the struggling person looking for safety who's drowning will drown you too. And I don't know if you know that, because sometimes, you know, in marriages especially, you've got one person who's much more aggressive, much more quiet. The aggressive person's grasping at one thing, quiet person's grasping for something else. Grasp for safety can be just as panicky and just as harmful and just as self-interested. And Jesus gets to a moment where he, he says, no, I'm not grasping, I'm entrusting. I entrust myself to the Father. All right, so listen, th- those are just examples of filling in what, what are these headlines about? What, what is this meal about. Well, there's bread involved that represents a headline, his broken body. There's a cup involved that represents the new covenant with all of its new terms and the basis of grace that's in it and the future realities that will last forever and promises that we long for. There's a lot of remembering here, right? That is a cup Oh, I've got to remember not to spill the cup when it comes to me? I'm, I'm taking communion today. No, no, no. There's remembering. This is a new covenant that we're going to drink today. I think the most important thing that can happen is not just the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. It's the remembering. So here's, here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like for us to take communion just a minute. Could we, as we're coming up to receive the, the bread and, is that how you guys do it? You guys come up for it? As you come up to do that, can you make a deal in your own soul right now that you won't eat that bread? We're going to do that together, so don't eat it when you just grab it. But you will not eat the bread or drink the cup without remembering some things. Intentionally calling to mind. Take a, take a headline just start to fill it in with the reality of what that means about God and about you. Let me pray for us and then you guys would come forward to receive communion today. Father, thank you for wonderful help that comes into the settings that sometimes are settings of suffering. Lord, I'm aware even today, here this morning, there could be some who the headlines of life feel like a wilderness, a desperate place, a place that they hope is going to change soon, a broken relationship. Lord, some remembering that you have designed in this meal can and will have a massively powerful impact on that setting 
for us. So Lord, help us, Lord, not just to receive outward emblems, but to do some serious remembering on the inside of our hearts. In Jesus' name. We just have guys come.